Are we ready to get started? Yes. Yay! All right. What is our topic today? I'm just joking. I know it. The truth about staying in control. Communicating with our adult children. How many of you in the room have uh, people in your life, not just adult children, but people in your life who you struggle to have conversations with uh, that are hard conversations? If so, raise your hand. Okay. Great. How many of you? Great. How many of you would say you don't have any problem at all? You have no challenges having conversations with people that matter in your life. Raise your hand. Okay. There are a few, and and that's okay. And I and I always ask that because I'm always curious. Why did you come today? And most of the time they say because it's going to be fun, and I'm good with that too. But the reality of it is, this this conversation isn't just about your adult children. This is about anybody in your life that you know. Uh, is tracking with you, right? It could be a neighbor, it could be a friend, it could be a financial advisor, it could be any trusted advisor that you have, niece, nephew, uh, anybody. But uh, the premises are the same, the concepts are the same, the, the challenges are roughly the same, uh, but we, we call it adult children because as you saw the hands in the room, those of you with adult children, they're kind of a pain in the rear, aren't they? <laughs> right? I mean, let's be honest, right? I am one. And so I'm speaking about myself in that context, right? My dad will tell you that sometimes uh, I'm a pain when it comes to some things in his life. And I will tell you that I have two 31-year-olds, and sometimes they're a pain in my side when it comes to certain things in my life, right? Uh, so we're going to talk about that today. We'll talk about what, why that might happen, why those people might be challenging sometimes or might be a pain sometimes. And I'm just very honest. You guys know that, right, about me. I'm very direct and bold and candid and sometimes I'm a little off color uh, less so now that we're doing this here at crossings um, so but I'm just going to say some things right we call them truths those of you who are new we call it the truth series because here we don't dance around topics just because they're hard and we don't dance around topics just because nobody else wants to talk about them we address them head on and we think that uh, the more that you address the things that are like the big elephants on the table um, the better off we all are right Betty all right, perfect. So let's get rolling. I'm going to grab my notes here, and uh, we'll get started. Um, the first truth I just want to kind of share with you guys is this. If you are 70 or older, your kids are likely having conversations about you and your future with people other than you. How many of you are aware of that? Right. Yeah, so interesting. A couple of quick stories. Uh, my friends, um, uh, good friends of ours, travel with us regularly. Uh, I've recently been helping their parents, her parents in particular, with some issues, uh, health challenges in particular. Well, uh, she always finds out about it after the fact, right? So uh, that frustrates her a lot. Uh, her parents are very capable people, very um, educated, and when they have health issues, they have a tendency to not tell their kids about it until there's a problem and they need their kids. And then their kids are kind of, it's kind of like they're trying to catch up, right? So interestingly enough, uh, when we go out to dinner and or when we're at the lake or we're on a trip, used to, and we've known these folks now for gosh, 20 some odd years or longer, we used to talk about our kids, right? What was going on in their lives and what was happening in sports and school and things like that. What do you think we talk about now? Parents, 
their parents, my parents, our parents, right? Um, that's pretty universal. I'm 52 years old. Um, people in their 40s, 50s, and even 60s now who are going out to dinner, they're having conversations with their friends about their parents, and that may be you. And if you don't know that, you need to know that because guess what they're doing when you're at home watching TV or you're out with your friends? What do you think they're talking about with their friends? What to do about you. Somebody laughed. That wasn't a joke, but you're right. It's, it's funny because it's true. So I bring that up because in the absence of a conversation with your kids about your plan, assuming you have a plan, they think they need to create a plan for you, right? And so that's why many of you come. I know it's why Betty comes, right? Because Betty, under no uncertain terms, wants her daughters or her kids doing things on her behalf without her knowing about it, right? And so she creates a plan, and then you go back and you tell your kids, this is my plan, right? You don't have to like my plan, but this is my plan, and so you don't need to talk about, talk about me to your friends at dinner tonight. Talk about something different. So... Um, it's, I laugh about it, and it's a funny topic, and I think I could probably do a comedy skit on it better than a seminar, frankly, because it's funny, some of the things that people talk about. But it's not funny when you, when you realize that it's true. So, um, these are the predictable dilemmas. Uh, David Soli talks about these in, in his book, and I've mentioned this book to you guys many times. It's called How to Say It to Seniors. Closing the Communication Gap with Our Elders. It's a paperback book designed for people who have parents that are aging. And it's basically a textbook, if you will, a very well-written textbook on how to have conversations with people's parents that are very empowering. In other words, not taking control of their lives, but helping them make decisions and being supportive of their decisions. And it's a great, it's a great little read. It was written like in 2004, so it's a little bit dated in its languaging. But other than that, it's a great book. Anyway, he mentions in his book, these are the five dilemmas, the predictable dilemmas, if you will, that we all have as it relates to getting older. And so one of them is, where will I live? Well, you guys all know we're in the real estate business. We have a move management company. And so this is where my, the majority of my conversations take place are in this particular uh, area, which is where are people going to live? Uh, how are they going to get there? And uh, how, do you, how do you make that happen effectively? But, that's, but in order to, to have that conversation, there's got to be some other conversations, right? So some of the other predictable dilemmas that Soli brings up is, how can I best manage my health? Well, most of us manage our health just fine until we don't. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute because I have a slide that really demonstrates what I'm talking about on this particular area. The third one is, how will I cope all by myself? So this is, you know, if you've been married for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and then you lose a spouse, then the question on people's mind is, how do I cope? Well, it's also the question on your kid's mind, right? How's mom going to do if dad passes? How's dad going to do if mom passes? And what do we need to do to fill the gaps if that were to happen? And then the fourth one, um, what should I do about money? What should I do about money? And that may have to do with, uh, do I retire? Do I not retire? How do I invest my money? Um, how, you know, how do I manage my money? What is my budget? All of these kind of things. Um, Soli talks about that. And then the last one is, uh, what is the right way to say goodbye? 
And that's really an end of life thing. It's also about legacy. And it's about, you know, if someone is diagnosed with an illness, how do they manage that illness if they know that their time is running short, right? So those are, interestingly enough, those are the five dilemmas. And like I said, he wrote that book in early 2000s. And those are still all pretty true. Would you agree? Right? Most of us have that on our mind at some level um, as we enter middle age and beyond. Now, here's what happens in our brains. <laughs> right? So for some of us, it's a straight line from point A to point B. It's very clear. Uh, there's not a lot of confusion. There's not a lot of questions. It's just here's how that's going to look. Right? And then for some of us, it looks like the other one, right? It's very confusing. And by the way, I couldn't find one that did loop-de-loops because that's kind of how mine looks, right? Yeah. Um, so what, what happens when you have in your mind point A to point B that looks like a straight line, but your kids think about you and your life and those issues, and it's like this, right? Or vice versa. Right? Your kids think, oh, it's a straight line. If mom, if dad passes away, mom's moving to a retirement community. Straight line. And mom's like, wait a minute, there are other things I'm going to consider before moving to a retirement community, right? It looks like this. So what happens is our communication is off because of our perception, <clears throat> excuse me, about the issue. Okay? Some people think, oh, it's a very clear-cut issue. Mom passes away, dad's going to move in with me. Dad's like, what the hell I am? <laughs> right? But again, straight line. Adult, daughter, and son get together, they have dinner with friends, and they go, if something happens, dad will move in with us, the basement is ready. We got the granny pad out back. Dad's like, nope, there's lots of options in between. Now, this is how some of our communication looks, um, truthfully, you know. Uh, it's, it's disjointed, it's a little distant, it doesn't really work very well, right? In theory, we're communicating, but are we really? Um, and so I have another truth for you. And this one, I, you know, this one's funny and not funny all at the same time. People cannot read our minds. Did you guys know that? Even your spouse. I mean, Chris thinks he can read my mind. Now, he can finish my sentences, but a lot of times I'll say something and he'll go to finish my sentence, and I'm like, oh, that isn't what I was going to say. Right? He thinks he can read my mind because I have patterns, right? I have patterns of behavior. We all do. But the fact is our kids can't read our minds. And let me ask you this. Are your plans for your life the same now as they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Yes or no? They might be different. And for some of you, they may be the same. But for some of you, they might be different. So if we haven't communicated those, then our kids are still working off of old patterns, right? Old thoughts, old ideas. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, my parents were, you know, poking at me, trying to make me decide where I want to be when I grew up. At one point in time, I wanted to be an attorney. Early junior high, high school, uh, I wanted to be an attorney. And they're like, great, that's great. So they tell all their friends, think he's going to be an attorney. They're so excited. And then I changed my mind. Imagine that. Uh, and then I wanted to be a journalist. I was on the yearbook club. I did all our yearbook committee. I did all these things. And I wanted to be a journalist. So I went and looked at colleges for journalism. And I was going to be a journalist. Dad would go out and tell everybody, no, she's not going to be an attorney. She's going to be a journalist. It was great. He loved it. He was going to be a journalist. Great. Next thing you know, I come back. I say, no, I'm not going to be a journalist. Change my mind. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'm not going to college. <laughs> really? Now, he didn't tell his friends that. Uh, that's right. He waited until I told him what I was going to be. And then what I ended up being was married with a kid. 
right? Then I later told him, came back, and I, I went to a church, and I was a youth director, and I said, you know what, I'm going to go back to college, I'm going to become a youth director, and he went out and told all his friends what? He's going to be a youth director, right? And then I was going to be a preacher, and he told all his friends I was going to be a preacher. And later, I was talking to one of his friends, and I'd been out of school for many years, and he goes, so how's college? I said, it's going okay. He said, uh, so you're going to be an attorney, right? I'm like, no! That was like junior high, but he was still operating off of what? Old information, right? So that happens in our lives uh, all the time, is we tell somebody something, and that's the last they heard about it, and so that's what information they're operating off of. Okay, so I'm going to show you a couple of slides, and I'm going to need to kind of describe to you what I'm showing you here, okay? Um, these are not fun to talk about, but I think they're important to talk about. So this particular slide, uh, what it is, it is the trajectory of someone's life based on uh, certain circumstances. So the, the top line there that is uh, it's like baby blue, okay, and it, it basically goes across and then goes down. It's dotted and it's baby blue. If you're not colorblind, you'll see that. All right, so it is the trajectory of someone who has a sudden decline from an acute illness. So let's say heart attack, stroke, uh, something, a uh, car accident, even acute illness. They go in, uh, they're doing fine, they have a sharp decline, and then let's say they're in a coma, or let's say they're in the hospital, and then they pass uh, with very low level of uh, capability towards the end. So someone with a sudden decline from acute illness. Now. The next one is someone with uh, certain forms of cancer. Now we know that certain forms of cancer um, can be treated and people can live a very long time with those, others cannot. The, the dark blue line is someone with cancer. Um, they can be high functioning for a long period of time. They may have a sharp decline and a very rapid death uh, once those treatment options are exhausted, right? So we know that. Uh, the third one is organ failure, and it's the red dotted line. And you can see that it's, it's kind of, it, it does something really unique and different, right? There's ups and downs and ups and downs. And so, you know, I look at this and I think about people like my dad who has COPD, for instance, right? So COPD, uh, he has good days and bad days, and he has, um, he has unfortunate, like, um, like, times where he's got to go to the ER because he can't breathe, so he goes in and he gets a breathing treatment. So that would be a down period. Oh, I thought that was me. That kind of freaked me out a little bit. Okay. Uh, so they have his down periods, but then he gets better, right? So he gets better, and then he'll have another down period a few months later, and then he gets better. So depending on what organ we're talking about and depending on the situation, people have ups and downs before they eventually pass. Can we just be really clear we all eventually pass? 100% of all studies say so, that 100% of us are going to pass at some point. Okay, just to be clear. All right, so these all end in death. I don't want this to be like a spoiler alert or anything. These all, these all end in death. Okay, then the last one, frailty slash dementia. Now, I hate it that they combine those two, right, because they don't necessarily always go hand in hand, but they did combine them, so that's the way I've got to look at it. So these, this is the green line. Now you'll notice that with the green line, it's a lower level of functioning, but it still has what? Ups and downs, right? Okay, so lower level of functioning than someone with, say, a organ failure issue, and, but it still has ups and downs. 
before someone eventually passes. Now, when our adult children, or we are talking about someone that we're caring for, are having these conversations, which one of these lines do you think people are most concerned about? The green? Who said green? Yeah, green. Okay. Most people are concerned about the green line. They, there's no reason to be concerned about the baby blue or teal line, and there's no reason to be concerned about the dark blue line because really we have zero control over that. Would you agree? Right? If those happen, they happen, and they're crises, and we can't really plan for them, we do the best we can, and we manage them. Yeah? Okay? The organ failure one, we have a little bit of control over, right? In some cases. In some cases, maybe not. But nonetheless, we have a healthcare system that we've got to learn to navigate, and that's how we manage that. But the green one, on the other hand, um, that one, that the jury's out on that. I want to talk about it uh, on a slide here in just a minute. But the green one, when, when kids are, uh, your kids or my kids, when they're at dinner talking to their friends about what's going to happen with mom and dad, they're talking about what if mom or dad get old and can't take care of themselves and what? Finish the sentence. And I have to. Does that make sense? Or who's going to have to, depending on the family, okay? So here's another quick truth. The world has changed and legal paperwork is virtually required even for family caregivers and trusted advisors, yeah? Okay, so I bring this up now because part of the issue that we have, if you go back to that other slide, right? Part of the issue that we have, and I'm just, I, I wasn't, this wasn't in my original talk and I added it later, and here's why. Guys, I can't tell you how many conversations I have had lately, and I'm in real estate. I mean, I'm not a healthcare provider, I'm in real estate. And I can't tell you how many conversations I have had with people who have had health care issues with a family member and they do not have a power of attorney in place. I, it's, it's ridiculous and I'm just going to preach for one second and I'll get off my soapbox. If you're sitting in this room and you're living, you have a breath and you have a pulse and you do not have a power of attorney that someone can use to help you if you have to go to the hospital, then you have just basically open yourself up to a crisis for your family or for your friends or for your neighbors. And it's frustrating because I love you. And if you called me and you said, Nikki, I'm in the hospital and I don't have anybody else to call. Can you come help me? The answer would be, what can I do to help you? And it would not be able, I would not be able to talk to anybody at the, they wouldn't even tell me that you're there, by the way. I can go to Mercy. I can stand at the front. I can say, is so-and-so there? They may or may not tell me. If they do, I can go up to the floor and guess what? The nurses aren't going to talk to me. Nobody's going to talk to me. I can't help you, even if I want to. And by the way, if you're my parent, I still can't help you. Isn't that crazy? That's the world we live in. I grew up in small-town America. We went to, to the doctor in Okarchi, Oklahoma, Dr. Stow. Some of you probably knew him, you know. He's, uh, and his dad was a doctor there, and my family all went there. And you could talk to them about anything, and they would talk to any of us about anybody. Right? How's my neighbor doing? I heard she had a heart attack. How's she doing? Oh, she's doing great. We put a stand in. They'd tell you anything about anybody because you knew everybody and chances are you were related to most of them. But now they don't do that. So I'm gonna I wanted to talk about that before I show this next slide because this next slide 
I, it was the first time I saw this slide when I started preparing for this particular talk, and it was very interesting um, when I came across it. Because like I said, I hadn't seen it. But it is uh, it's something that they're actually using, or a version of it, that they're actually using in the healthcare environment now. And it's called the uh, frailty scale, clinical frailty scale. Did you know there was such a thing? Clinical frailty scale. This is different than a mini mental exam. This is different than uh, some of the things out there that we've heard about. And so what it is, is it walks a clinician, whether it's a doctor or a nurse or somebody, through whether or not someone is at risk for probably hospitalization more than anything, okay? So the very first one is the person's very fit. They're robust, they're active, they're motivated, they exercise regularly, they're, they're doing great, okay? Doesn't matter the age, this isn't age-related at all. The second one is well, the person is well. They're living without disease, uh, they're not as fit as those in the first category, but they're well. The third one is they're managing well. Now, they may be living with a disease. Uh, the symptoms are well controlled and managed, and they're managing well. Now, four is where we start to get into a little bit of concern, okay? Four is vulnerable. And while not dependent, these individuals face challenges that slow them down. Now, think about that. Some of us might be vulnerable, like after surgery, right, while we're rehabbing, and then we go back to being managing well or well. Okay, so that vulnerable, number four, could be a temporary state, or it could be a more permanent or progressive situation. If it's progressive, it will go to number five. Number five is called mildly frail. Mildly frail. This is where the word frail comes in. And I don't know any of you who think it will be a compliment if somebody, oh, Tommy, you look great today. You look a little bit frail, but otherwise you look great. That is not a compliment. Right? Frail is, for most of us, not a compliment. Living with limited dependence on others to perform activities of daily living. Living with limited dependence. Okay? Now, number, number six is moderately frail. Help is needed for all activities of daily living, bathing, housework, and getting around. Now, I know some people who need help with a lot of these things because they've had a disease process for a lot of years and they've learned to live with it. They have a really great caregiving team and so on. And I don't know that I would describe them as moderately frail um, because of who they are up here. Does that make sense? Okay, but from a clinical standpoint, if something happened to that person's caregiver, that could present a pretty big challenge for them, right? So then, after moderately frail, we go to number seven, which is severely frail. Completely dependent on others for personal care. Now, I've got little um, caution signs. I added those to the graph. Those did not come on the graph. So the caution, the yellow caution signs are where people in my world, anyway, when I think about this communication topic, that's when people start to talk about you. They're not talking about you until you hit number four. Once you hit number four, that's when the conversation starts to come up. You know, so-and-so's not looking very good, right? Dad doesn't seem to be getting around as well, right? Mom seems to be uh, moving a little slower, okay? Once you get to number seven, severely frail, not only are the people around you, your kids, your family talking about you, your doctor's probably also talking to you, okay, at that point. 
And then you get to number eight is very, not just severely frail, but very severely frail. I guess they couldn't think of a better adjective than very. Very severely frail. Completely dependent and approaching the end of life. This is probably going to be somebody who is, at this point in time, in some sort of a care environment, right? They're either in long-term care, they're living with family with 24-hour care of some sort at that level. And then number nine is terminally ill. Now, when we think of terminally ill, we, a lot of times we think of uh, people with a chronic, I mean, a, a terminal illness like cancer or something like that. But somebody with... Uh, uh, just natural age-related decline becomes terminally ill at some point, right? Even if it's just for a few hours. Um, so we're all going to be terminally ill right before we pass. It just is a matter of how long, yeah? And so terminally ill is approaching the end of life with an expectancy of less than six months. Now, as you can imagine, hospice folks use this a lot, right? They kind of look at it and go, this is when somebody qualifies for their services. Now, the reason I bring this up is because there were some, and I didn't get a graph of it, but this could be laid next to a graph of someone who is aging well, let's just call it that, aging well, where there's like an arc. And the arc is pretty, uh, it's like they're very active, very independent, very doing very well, and then there's a sharp decline, and the person passes away in their sleep at say 101, after the day before they were out playing pickleball. Isn't that kind of how we all want to go? Uh, that's ideally, right? And some of you it's golf, and some of you it's pickleball, and some of you it's after having spent the great weekend with your family. We all want that, and that's really kind of what we say we want. But the problem with that is the statistic is that 70% of people are going to look more like this than like the other. Does that make sense? 70%. Now, there are some reasons for that. And I'm not a clinical person, and I'm not a medical person, so I'm not going to talk to you about all the ways that you can avoid that tra trajectory, because there's plenty of seminars out there you can go to about that, right? And frankly, one of them is what you're already doing, which is you're getting up and you're getting out and you're doing these things after retirement. Problem, problem in my mind, the reason that we have this trajectory is because people retire from their job and then they don't get a life. And so they sit, and over time, they just become frail. They become frail, right? They become frail. They don't get frail. They become frail. So there are ways to avoid that um, that we can talk about another day. But the reason I want to share that with you is because when you're going to be communicating with your adult children, let me go back to that one more time. When you're communicating with your adult children or your trusted advisors, here's the problem. You're communicating from number one, two, and three. That's where you're communicating from, you get it? Right now, today. What they're thinking about isn't one, two, or three. What are they thinking about? Four, five, six, seven, and eight, you get it? That's where their mind is, what if, what if? And if you say to them, but I'm doing really well. Okay, but what if? Well, we wanna avoid those what if conversations because we all wanna be on this trajectory. Okay? So the way, that, the way that we get peace of mind in most cases, most of us anyway, particularly women, I don't know, I don't speak as well for men, but particularly women, we like peace of mind. We like to know that stuff's handled. That stuff's handled. And if stuff's handled, then we can handle anything, right? We can do anything. If we know we have a contingency plan and that that contingency plan is solid, 
then chances are it doesn't matter what crisis comes up, we'll handle it. Right? And I know a lot of men that way too. But I also know people who look a little bit uh, different. I'll show you a picture of how they look here in a minute. So here's the truth. In the absence of an intentional plan, crises are hard to manage effectively. Can we plan for every crisis, yes or no? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not, right? There is no way to plan for a diagnosis of stage 4 cancer, right? You can't know. You can't imagine, right? You can't think about that. There is no way to plan for a car accident. There is no way to plan for it. Now, what we can do is we can have our legal documents in place and we can have things in place that if that were to happen, we've done everything we can do to mitigate the problems associated with that crisis ahead of time. Right? So here are the family types. And I want to bring this up because, uh, in, like I said, in our world, in real estate, we deal with a lot of people. A lot, a lot of people. And a lot of times the people that we're helping are downsizing. Right? That's who we deal with. And so when they're downsizing, what happens is the families get involved. And I love it when families get involved depending on the kind of family they are. <laughs> right? So, no offense to your family if one of them is in this list, but um, I can tell you that uh, I have a family too, and uh, you've heard about some of my family stuff from time to time. I share with it, so I'm not up here preaching uh, as if I'm the authority. I'm preaching to the choir because I promise you I have my own issues, okay? So, um, my, my, my mother-in-law is amazing, by the way. She's, she's amazing. She's back here somewhere, right? She's amazing. My husband is amazing. Right? I have a great family. I have a great dad, too. But I have people in my life that I do not get along with. And when we have to come together as a family, um, it's not always easy. Okay? So here are the types. Ready? Number one, uninvolved. They're just uninvolved. Number two, supportive and available if needed. Number three, supportive and actively involved. Number four, controlling and unavailable. <laughs> How does that work? That's the attorney that lives out of state but wants to see everything you sign before you sign it. Follow me? They don't come to Christmas, they don't come to birthdays, and they don't come for the summer holiday, but if you're going to sign paperwork, they want to see it. That's what I mean when I say controlling and unavailable. Okay? Same way with nurses, same way with attorneys, same way with financial planners. Anybody in your life who has a higher ed degree in any area might be controlling and unavailable. Just saying. Not all. Not all, but might be. Um, I could do a comedy. I could do a stand-up comedy act on that point right there alone. Number five, controlling and actively involved. In other words, they're in control and they're there all the time. We love those. We love those families. Number six, proxy decision makers by design. Proxy decision makers by design. In other words, you're in a crisis or you're stressed out and you have somebody that is there that you have assigned and they're in charge and they're equipped and they're supportive and they're there because you asked them to be and it's great, right? You're in agreement with them, they're in agreement with you and everybody's working together. Last one, proxy decision makers by default. That's when the crisis occurs and you don't have somebody assigned and somebody steps up and they are your proxy decision maker whether you like it or not and whether they're equipped or not and whether or not anybody else likes it or not, okay? So those are the seven categories. Is there any other category that I may have missed? No? Did I cover them? Okay. All right. So those are the seven. Now, I like number two, number three, and number six. Right? Two, three, and six are great. They're supportive and available if needed. 
they're supportive and actively involved, and they're a proxy decision maker by design. Those are great to work with. All the other ones, very difficult, okay? Very difficult uh, to do anything with. And, I, and that, like I said, we're not dealing with life and death, right? We're not dealing with decisions about surgeries or medications or that kind of thing. We're dealing with getting you from point A to point B with your stuff. I can't imagine how dealing with number one, four, five, and seven would be if we were in the hospital having to deal with them in that scenario, okay? So, now, in your kid's defense, let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Um, most of our family members, they want to be, they want to be helpful because they feel a sense of responsibility, of familial duty, right? Some sense of either either misplaced obligation or sincere obligation, right? They want to help, um, but they're not always equipped or they're not always uh, the best at that particular task sometimes. Um, does anybody in the room have a, a daughter? Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay. So uh, raise your hand again if you have a daughter that likes to be in charge of everything. Okay, a few of them, right? Okay. So that would be me, right? I would be that daughter in my family, right? And so I have to work really hard, like with Chris's side of the family, to take a step back and assume the role of the daughter-in-law because some of those decisions are not my decisions, right? I'm there to support my husband and my mother-in-law, my family. If asked, I can step up, that kind of thing. But it's really hard for me to do because I'm used to being in charge. I like being up here, like being in charge, right? So when I'm in the family meeting and I want to speak my mind, I have to ask myself, how do I communicate that effectively, right? Or do I communicate it at all? Now, I'm pretty self-aware. Not everybody is, right? Some people just word it out. And those are the people that you'd like to muzzle in a meeting, yeah? Right? Just don't talk. Sit there and we'll get some duct tape. Okay? But you can, right? Because if it's a family meeting, it's a family meeting. And everybody gets a chance to talk. But not everybody is going to be effective at communicating. Um, in my own family, I am the one that takes charge. And sometimes that's misplaced and misguided. Right? Sometimes I just need to shut up and let things happen the way that they happen, which is kind of what I'm doing right now in my life, right, is saying, you know what, let the, let the cards fall, and then when the crisis happens, I'll be there to help, okay? Because guess what, even the adult, the adult daughters in your life, and I bring this up because I can identify, the adult daughters, nieces, granddaughters, uh, friends, neighbors that are control freaks, it kills them when you do not plan. <laughs> and so guess what they do? They plan without you, right? And because that, that's their nature. They can't help it. They don't know what to do if there's no plan. And so, like, in my mind, I have the what-ifs planned out for my dad all the way through end of life. If this happens, this is what I'll do. If this happens, this is what I'll do. If that happens, this is what I'll do. This is what I'll do. Because he won't talk about it. In most cases, he just won't talk about it. Okay? It's not that I haven't tried. It's just that he is, uh, I'll tell you so who he is. This is, how, this is how most people, I would love to have most people like this. Right? Slow going. It doesn't have to be fast. We can take our time. We can plan. Have some great conversations. Right? Just communicate. Right? Don't they look like they're having a nice conversation? I think they do. I'd like that to be me and my dad. Instead, this is how it works. <laughs> that's my dad. And that's me. And that's the world we're living in right now. Right? Don't talk to me about anything. Some of you are okay, so I want you to decide which one you are. Right now, decide if this is you, or if this is you, 
Jerry's laughing. You'll remember these slides, won't you? If you don't remember anything else today, I'll remember the turtles. Or are you this one? Because the reality is today is all about what is your level of willingness to have conversations about the hard things. Now, not everybody needs to have these conversations, and I get it. I'm, I, like I said, I have self-disclosed that I like to know uh, what the plan is going to be, at least some version of it. I'm not analytical at all. I just like to know kind of what is my role. Now, this is where I want to talk about something else, and that is that we all want to know where where we fit into this, right? So your, your kids, your neighbor, your friend, I, I can't tell you how many people from this room, at least a dozen over the years, have come up to me and said, Nikki, I have a neighbor that I'm trying to help. What should I do? And my first question is, is it your job to help? Have you been given that job? Is it your role? Well, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is, does that person want your help first? Well, I don't know, but she needs it. <laughs> yeah, but does she want it? Well, yes. Okay, she's asked for it. Great. Are you equipped? Are you willing? Are they willing? Because there are things you can do to help if they're willing and you're willing, and that's your role, right? But what happens is I like to know what is my role. So like in Chris's family, I'm really clear about what my role is. And I stay in my lane and I know what to do. And we will all work really well together. In my own personal family, I know what my role is. I know what I'm good at. I stay in my lane really well. I have another family that I, I won't mention because it's not important. But I do have another leg of my mom's side of the family that I'm really not sure what my role is. And I'm a little bit nervous about that because I'm kind of looking out down the path of that right, of that frailty scale, and I'm wondering who's going to be in what role for them if something happens, if this, if that, and so on and so forth, right, but it's not my job, I've been assigned a job, and so as I was preparing for this over the last few weeks, I thought, you know what, Nikki, you're going to be talking to people about having conversations, and you haven't even had one, and it occurred to me, I need to be the one that instigates this because they never will, I need to go to them and say, what is my role, do I have one? Because if I do have one, I'd love to talk about it so that I am prepared for that role and that you're prepared for that role. But if you don't want me to have that role, I can move on. <laughs> I can quit worrying about it because it takes up a lot of brain space, guys. It takes up a lot of energy to worry. How many of you are worriers by nature? Raise your hand. A few of you. Yeah, most of you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So if you're a worrier by nature, when you're worried about someone you care about, it takes up a lot of energy. And so my, I'm going to encourage you guys to have some conversations. Okay, so I have seven suggested discussion topics. Now, this is not all of them. This is not a comprehensive list. Um, in fact, I'm going to share with you about um, a uh, program that Villages does. We've talked about it many times called The Gift. And there's like 12 topics that they, they have in their workshop. But these are the seven, and, and there's, you know, there are different versions of this. So... What is it that we need to talk about? Number one, finances. Insurance, banking, budget, that kind of thing, right? Not control. This isn't about giving someone control. It isn't about giving them, putting them on your bank account. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about reassurance. Here's what I mean. Uh, one of the conversations, matter of fact, I have some things here. I don't have slides. I'm going to read these to you. I have a list. Uh, let's see here. 
I have a list of things that people say. I have a list of things that people say that you might be surprised about. And this will help us with these seven. Yeah. Okay, ready? All right, I'm just going to read through them really, really quickly. Don't try to write them down because I'm going to go too fast for that. These are just things that people say, and then I'll go back to the seven. <clears throat> these are actual things people have said. I don't have names in here. Are my parents expecting to move in with us? If not, can they afford one of those places? Can our, can our parents, this is the alternative way I hear it, can our parents afford one of those places? If not, are they going to expect to move in with us? Okay, very common. When my parents are gone, what are we going to do with all that stuff in their house? Are there junk haulers that just pick it up? It's going to take us forever to go through all that stuff. I think she puts money inside everything, so we can't just hire people to do it for us. Mom's behavior has been really weird lately. She isn't herself. She got lost going home from the store on Friday. Should we take her keys or just disable her car? <laughs> These are real questions. All my dad eats is popcorn, TV dinners, and Coke. He fell twice last week. How should I approach the topic of assisted living? I wish my mom had more friends. She doesn't really get out, and she changes the subject when I ask her what she's been up to. Since mom died, dad has been eat, uh, sorry. Since mom died, dad has been dating a lot. He seems to have a new lady friend every week or two. I worry that they're only after his money. I have no idea if my parents own their home, have loans on their cars, or have a life insurance policy. They are so private about money. Mom remarried about ten years ago. The house was his, but surely he has made arrangements for her to live there if he dies before her. I think my parents want to be buried, but frankly, that's a waste. I plan to have them cremated. <laughs> oh, sorry. The next line is, it's not like they'll know. <laughs> Last one. I haven't spoken to my siblings in a decade or more. I dread having to go back for the funeral. I'm not sure I'll even go. Okay. These are real conversations with real people, with real, obviously, issues and concerns. All right, so now, this is why these seven topics could be important to have. So back to the whole financial thing, right? So the issue is, in the absence of knowledge, people make up their own story, right? So it could go either way. You may have plenty of money to sustain the lifestyle that you choose in your life for the rest of your life, however old you live, but if your kids or your trusted advisor doesn't know that, they either make up one story, which is what? You don't have enough. You might be broke and need Medicaid. Or you have millions or billions and plenty, and they don't need to worry about it because you're going to be able to handle it. Does that make sense? There's probably some truth somewhere in the middle, but without knowing what it is, they're going to make up a story. And almost every story, human nature, psychology says that if we make up a story, we make up a worst-case scenario and a best-case scenario. We rarely make up an actual real scenario. So if you were to tell your kids or your niece or whoever it is that's going to be tasked with being in the role of advisor slash caregiver, what your financial situation is and give them an inkling as to the idea that you could take that you could take that off the table in terms of a worry for them okay just the knowledge of it it doesn't have to be 
control of it by any means, just the knowledge of it. Then the second thing is housing options at different stages of capability. Housing options at different stages of capability. You know, we were very clear uh, with Chris's parents. They told us, Jim said, he is not moving ever, never, 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 never. Not even, it's not even a conversation he wants to have. So we knew that as long as Jim was alive, he and Wanda would be living in that house. And as a family, we knew that if something happened, we would need to make arrangements to care for him or them in their home. That's just what it was, and we knew that. We also knew from conversations like that that if something happened to Jim, Wanda would move immediately because she was ready to move a long time ago. So when Jim passed in February, uh, it wasn't long after that Wanda said, I'm ready to move, right? So what, what can I afford? What can I do? Let's do this. And so now she's moving. So we kind of knew. Now, with my dad, I've mentioned to you guys before, I asked Dad, so Dad, what would happen? He has severe COPD. What would happen if you can no longer live in your home because you need some more medical help that can be provided in your home? And he said, I want to move to the nursing home. And I said, okay. So the nursing home at the time we had that conversation was up the hill, three blocks from him in Gary, Oklahoma. Guess what? That nursing home is now boarded up as a grow house. He can't live there. Well, he could, but it would be good. Right? So now what? Right? Now what? So now the answer is I'm staying here. I'm not going anywhere. So guess what? We call that denial in my world. Right? We call it denial. So there, there will be a day when we have to make some hard decisions whether or not we're able to help him sustain that reality or he'll need to move. And if, if that means, guess what? Who's going to be in charge of that decision? I am. Right? So I'm planning ahead. Housing options at different stages of capability. If you know that you have a long-term illness that is going to cause you to decline over a period and you're going to go through that uh, frailty naturally and progressively, and you know that at some point you want to pass away in your own home, tell people that. Hospice, that's what it's designed for, right? Hospice, home care, that's what it's designed for. But if they don't know that and the hospital says we're going to discharge them to long-term care or skilled, guess what? If they don't know that your goal is to stay at home and pass, you're going to go wherever the doctor says or the discharge planner says. So you've got to kind of give somebody that role and give them permission to advocate for you for that role. Now, if they're going to be that person, what do they also need besides your permission? Yeah, legal docs, right? The legal docs that go with the permission. And that's what Jennifer does. That's what, right? That's why we have an attorney as an education partner. Because too many people don't have that, and we wanted to make it easy for you to do if you need to do it. Okay, the third one is legal documents. Imagine that, right? So legal documents, current and needed. So let's say you do have all your legal documents, and you do have all your ducks in a row, and you've gone through that process. Do they know that? Now, what happens is a lot of times people will tell the person who, who they named as power of attorney that they're the power of attorney. But let's say they have two or three siblings. Do they know that, does Joe and Susie and Marcus know that Mary is power of attorney? Because if they don't know that, who should know that? Everybody should know that because what happens is they find that out in the moment where it's got to be used and you've got this big uproar because they thought they were, we thought we were all in charge. We thought mom and dad loved us all equally. They clearly love you more and you're going to be the one that gets to make the hard decisions. 
Now that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, but that's what people say, right? They just got the hardest job on the earth and all the other kids are mad because they didn't get it. Or it can go the other way around. The kid that got it didn't know they had it. And now they're told they have it and they don't want it. And the kid who did want it didn't get it. But because they didn't get it, they just say, screw it, you're it, I'm leaving. Right? It, I mean, you guys know this happens, right? These are real situations. And you think, oh, my kids all get along great. Yep. <laughs> so we've got to talk about the legal documents. Number four, health, health care, and end-of-life issues. Health, health care, and end-of-life issues. Can't tell you, I know a lot of you guys have changed your insurance policies from uh, Medicare, straight Medicare, to Medicare Advantage. Um, and I'm not here to say one, whether one's good or bad, but I'm going to tell you that Medicare Advantage comes with its problems. And if your kids don't know how to navigate, navigate Medicare Advantage and all the, the uh, pre-authorizations that go with that, and if you don't have an advocate who can do that and sit on the phone and file appeal after appeal after appeal, then you need to find one. If you have a Medicare Advantage plan and you don't have a responsible person who knows how to navigate the healthcare system with a power of attorney, you're going to be in trouble. So healthcare, what is your insurance? What is your uh, medication situation look like? Are you going to need, like, there's a lot of people that we help move and they did not know until we helped their parents move that they were on oxygen or a CPAP or some sort of medical device, right? Oh, I had no idea. I wonder where they get that. I wonder who handles that. I wonder who prescribed that, right? So it's good to have that stuff, uh, those conversations with that person. Now, by the way, do you need to have the conversation about finances with your healthcare person and healthcare stuff with your finance person? Yes or no? Yes. Maybe. The answer is maybe, right? Because if if the healthcare person's got to know about the finances and the finance person needs to know what the expenses are, right? So you might have to have separate conversations about some stuff and then a conversation with the two of them about the things that matter that are going to overlap. And then number five, this one's really important. If you didn't, uh, maybe write this one down, put a star on it. Who will play what role and when? Who will play what role and when. Uh, this was something as simple, and I know this sounds really trivial in the grand scheme of things, but it's really not. Um, social media, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, all these different social media. So most, most people these days have a Facebook account, even if you're not on there much, you probably set one up at some point, you have one. Um, if you use it regularly, great. If you don't, it's still out there, and unless you deleted it, it's still there. Well, so Facebook over the years has made provisions now where they have what's called a legacy contact. And a legacy contact is the person that you assign on Facebook to be in charge of your Facebook account when you pass. So I was the legacy holder, account holder for my father-in-law, Jim, because it, it was something I could do to help. And I used social media and nobody else wanted to do it and I said I could do that. So we went into his Facebook, he assigned me as his legacy contact, and then when he passed, I submitted to Facebook his death certificate, his obituary, I think, and then they basically allowed me to put a final post on his account, change his uh, profile picture, and essentially shut his account down. 
And the reason that's important is because if you don't do that, you know what happens? Hackers get it. Hackers get into the account and then they copy it and they take all your personal data out of that and they begin friending your friends that you were friends with. And so people would have been getting friend requests from Jim after he passed. That's terrible. That's terrible. It's painful for people. Right? It's painful. It's like, what, 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 what is this about? Right? So I was the legacy contact person, so I could do that. Who is in what role, and did you tell them? Right? So if somebody's going to be your Facebook legacy contact, then tell them that. And say, I would love for you to do this for me. If something should happen to me, would you please do that? And by the way, that's a very loving conversation, isn't it? Right? It's, a very, it's, it's thoughtful. It's like, okay, I, I care about you this much. Would you do this for me? Okay? And it's not a hard ask. Now, there are some things that are hard asks, like, will you be the trustee on my trust? Will you be the executor of my estate? And I have a will if I pass. Those are hard asks. And those are going to require some planning, right? Um, and then number six, permission to address difficult but honest concerns. What are some of those difficult but honest concerns? Let's name a few. What are some difficult but honest concerns you might have that need to be mentioned? What kind of funeral do you want to have? Very good. What else? Do you want to be on life support or not? Yeah. What else? A DNR. Yeah. Would you want to have a DNR and under what circumstances? Good. Let's think less hard but still hard. What to do with the family car? What to do with the family car? Say car, right? Yeah. When should you stop driving, right? If or should you, right? That kind of yeah. What are we going to do with the car and when? Good. What else? What to have for dinner? Sometimes those are the hard questions. Yeah. So I wrote down a few, and you named most of them. So driving, cognitive impairment. What happens if someone starts to lose their memory and they start to forget things or they get lost driving home from the market, right? So at what point do we address cognitive decline? And if so, who's in charge of bringing that up to mom? Who's in charge of bringing that up to Aunt Susie? Who's in charge of that role? And then who's going to get the appointment for the neurologist and take mom or dad there, okay? Um, the other one I wrote down was um, risky or questionable relationships. Risky or questionable relationships. Guys, we have a, a person that used to come to our seminars way early on, eight years ago, and uh, she met somebody at a dance thing that she was a part of, uh, married him. He was 20 years her junior. She was in her 80s, he was in his 60s. They got married, he took her for everything. Took her for everything. She sold her house, he took that. They bought a house together, he took that. He got his name on all her savings accounts and her checking accounts and everything. Her daughters have nothing. They couldn't stop it. They tried. They went to court. They tried to get guardianship. The court said she was of sound mind. She was not. She was early stages of dementia. But it was too late. So if mom or dad's dating somebody and it appears that this person is probably not safe or has ulterior motives, who's in charge of that? Who's the one that's going to have that conversation? And are you giving someone permission to have this conversation? One of the things I love about Marilyn Olson, I don't think she's here right now, but she's the one that created this gift program. And one of the things she said is she's giving her daughters permission to tell her when certain things happen. Right? If you notice certain things about me, tell me. Right? I'm, I want you to have those conversations with me. 
One more is uh, uh, hygiene. If someone's hygiene is bad, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know? Right, bless you. There, there are times when, uh, when people are ill or they have certain circumstances of cognitive decline, again, uh, if someone is not taking care of themselves and their hygiene is bad or they wore the same clothes now for six days in a row and they've got food on them, I have families who go, you're going to meet with my parents, I know, and you're going to notice that my dad's been wearing the same thing for two weeks and we can't get any change. Who's in charge of having that conversation? Who's in charge of having that conversation? And then relocation. Uh, when is it time to move? When is it no longer safe? Um, when I, oh, hygiene, the other one is pets. Um, I don't know how many times I've gone to people's homes and their pets are not uh, being cared for because they can't, they can't care for them anymore. And so there's feces all over the floor and the cats have peed everywhere or the litter box is overflowing or whatever the case may be. And the family's like, well, we just haven't mentioned it to mom. We don't want to hurt her feelings. <coughs> Right? Who's in charge of that conversation? So put people in charge of certain conversations. I can tell you right now that if I have bad hygiene, I do not want my son to be the one that has to tell me. My daughter should tell me that. Dakota, if I smell bad or if I'm wearing the same clothes, would you please make sure you address that with me and then let's please get a doctor's appointment. Right? Because there's something wrong. I have good hygiene generally, right? Except at the lake, then I don't care. But generally, I have good hygiene, which means if I go six days and I'm wearing the same clothes, there is a problem. Now, if you have bad hygiene already, that may not be your issue. <laughs> That's just that, <laughs> right? Okay. All right, last but not least, and then I'll finish up, confidentiality and inclusion. And I left this one for last because if there was one action item that you would take, uh, I would say this would be a good one. Confidentiality and inclusion. Um, who to share what with, how and when. So, for example, um, uh, good friends of ours, the Barbers down in Austin, uh, their folks were in their 80s and they had a car accident. A guy ran into them at night. A drunk driver hit the car behind them. The car behind them hit them. He passed away at the hospital. Um, the mom had severe injuries and was in the hospital for a period of time. Well, when you're in a crisis like that, that's not something you can plan for, right? When you're in a crisis like that and people find out, they want to know how you're doing. And the last thing you want is 25,000 phone calls and text messages coming in and saying, right, how's your mom? How are you? What can we do? So who's in charge? Who's the point person? So they assigned uh, a niece, which I thought was brilliant. She was really good on social media, and she set up a chain, right? She set up an email and a phone chain and a social media thing, and she basically said, I am the point person. The family will tell me what to tell you, and I will post it every day at a certain time. And if you have questions, you type them into the comments, and I will take those questions to the family. And on a certain day and time, I will have those conversations with the family, and then I will report back. So that they weren't bombarded, but that the people who cared about them were being updated. Does that make sense? So who is your person? Who is your point person? Um, when someone passes away, everybody should have a point person, right? To be able to inform people that need to be informed. And when someone passes away uh, and people call and say, can I bring food? Where should I bring it? I don't want to be the one, if I'm grieving, I don't want to be the one that tries to decide that, right? Let somebody else decide that. So who is your point person? And that might be for if there is a tragedy or a death or a hospitalization or, you know, anything, right? Who is, your, who is your point person and what do they need to be on point about, right? 
Okay. Last but not least, um, you can know all this. We can know it. Uh, all of us know a lot of stuff. But if you don't actually take action on this, then knowing it is really kind of irrelevant, right? So what do we need to do to take action? You know me. I'm all about action. If I, I can stand up here all day long and talk about problems. But it does us no good to talk about problems if we don't talk about solutions. So I'm going to give you two or three um, that are going to be helpful. You don't have to use any of them. You can do your own. Um, one of them is that we're doing another seminar on Tuesday of next week. The truth about holding a family meeting. Let me tell you about that one. That's going to be a panel. There'll be three people or so on the panel. And we're going to talk about how to have a meeting. Right? Like I'm talking theory today. Right? I'm talking big picture. On Tuesday of next week, what we're going to talk about is the how-to. How to call them. How to have the conversation. What script to use if you're not sure about it. Some of you may not be sure how to open the conversation. Right? Um, how to how to fill out forms. What forms might you need? So we're just going to talk about that. There'll be a lot of question and answer time for that on Tuesday. Um, now I do know from Danielle that we only have like half the room at the library. I think that week, which means it's a pretty tight space. We may not have tables. So if you are a um, yeah, so if you're if you're coming and we're like 50, 60 people already registered, uh, you might want to bring a clipboard or a notepad so that you have something to write on if we have to pull tables due to the number of people for that. Okay, so the other thing that uh, I recommend is if you have not taken part in this, uh, it, you just, it's invaluable. So how many of you have done the gift workshop? Raise your hand. Okay, the people at the middle table, some folks here, Joe, good. Okay, great. Some of you have. Uh, this was created by uh, my good friend back here and Executive Director Marilyn Olson at Villages OKC. Um, it's on its, uh, I don't know, third or fourth iteration now, but she was on a panel years ago for us when I asked her about, you know, how to stay independent, and she brought this binder with her. It wasn't this binder. She brought a binder with it. It had stuff hanging out of it, and she told this story about her Aunt Jessie and how when her Aunt Jessie needed her help, she had a binder with all her stuff in it. And I said, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. And she got together with Julie Davis at Concordia and some other people that we uh, have uh, in our vendor pool. And they created a class, a, a guide and then a class on having the hard conversations about basically 12 topics. Right? Most of the ones I talked about today, plus a few more. And what they do is they get together. It's kind of like a support group, uh, 8 to 10 people or so. Uh, there's a facilitator. The facilitator there is just there to have a conversation with you. And you basically fill out the binder for yourself or someone else. But that's not what's important. The stuff, the information, is not what's important. It's the conversations that you have to have in order to either fill out the information or once you've filled out the information to inform other people about the information, right? So it's basically a, uh, it's a built-in way to have some support around these hard conversations that you need or want to have. Now, you can fill out the binder for yourself, like I said, or you can fill it out like, let's say I can go to the workshop and do it for my dad. But guess what? If I'm going to do a book for my dad, who do I need to have a book for? Right, right? And when anytime you're pointing at somebody else, what is the deal? Three fingers are pointing back at you, right? So if you go, oh, my parents need a book, or my neighbor needs a book, that also means you need a book. It's not about the book, by the way. It's about the conversations that the book prompts and helps you to have. 
So that's the second um, solution. And then I would say that the, the third solution that I would give you is if you're married or you have a partner or you live with somebody and that's your, that's your person, you go home and you have these conversations with them first. Because I cannot tell you how many people, the reason they're not having the conversations is they haven't even had the conversations in their own house. And so it's really hard to talk to the kids about it if you're not even talking about it. So that would be the first thing you have to do is you have to get, you have to get in alignment about that. I mentioned to Chris, I think it was a couple weeks ago, we were talking about end of life stuff and I said, well, you know, if I'm uh, diagnosed with, um, uh, and I won't say which, but if I'm diagnosed with a certain illness and it's imminent that uh, I'm going to have this trajectory, I said, I'm just going to contact Vigantos in Switzerland and I'm just going to go over and I'm just going to, I'm going to make a decision for myself to die when I want to die. And I've looked it up and I've researched it and he goes, what, I, I don't, I don't know if I could be a part of that. Like, I mean, he was caught off guard and I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? I've, I've told you this. He's like, no, I know you researched that, but I didn't know you were thinking about that. It was like, I was surprised he wasn't aware. Does that make sense? So if you're thinking, I'm, this is my plan and you think that your people know what your plan is, you better make sure, right? And so I have some work to do uh, in that department, right? Over time, I'm going to make that plan. And how does that look? And what's the paperwork like? And I probably should have those conversations with my own kids, right? Right. But your spouse has got to be a board, your partner, your person, okay? All right. So how many of you just now felt the room get heavy? <laughs> Did you feel it? Right? You feel the room get heavy? Why? I, earlier I said 100% of all studies say that 100% of us are going to die and we all laughed. But just now when I said that I have a plan and I know how I'm going to do it if this happens, the room got heavy. Isn't that interesting? I love human behavior, right? The reason it got heavy is why? Reality. Truth. Who said it? Because it was the truth, and some of you were thinking it but wouldn't say it, and when I said it, you went, oh, I don't know if I want to hear that, because I don't know if I want to say it, I don't know if I think it, I don't know if my parents were, right? It's scary sometimes. It's scary to talk about things that are not socially acceptable, right? We're in a church. I don't know if it's socially acceptable to be talking about in this church. I don't know. I don't go to church here. I don't know what their faith is, but they've told me that up here that this isn't about church. So if your religious beliefs prevent you from thinking that way, that's okay. Don't do that. That you shouldn't. That you should do what is right for you. Don't also, you can't judge another person, right, for what it is they want to do either. Because last time I checked, that kind of goes against your faith as well, right? So not to be preachy, but here's, here's what I think is interesting. When we start talking about end of life, and this wasn't part of my talk today, but I can't help it. When we start talking about end of life, guys, we either get really judgy and talk about it, talk about it to other people or we look like that turtle up there and we stick our head in our shell and we don't talk about it at all and we keep it inside and that is the absolute worst thing we can do it's the absolute worst thing we can do we need to be having these conversations out loud matter of fact next year we're going to have the conversation about that um, end of life in a little different context 
um, as well as a couple of other things that are going to be fun. We're going to talk about sex next year. Are you all excited about that? Yeah? We're going to talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, it's going to be so much fun. Yeah. We have a session. It's called um, uh, The Attorney, The Preacher, and The Financial Planner Are All Sitting at a Bar. Okay, so good. I'm glad you're laughing. Okay, here's the last thing, homework, uh, and then I'm going to let you guys out of here. There are two more seminars coming up, uh, one August 2nd, The Truth About Buying After Retirement. This is not on any of your paperwork, probably, uh, except for we, we did print a new flyer that Danielle may have back there at the registration table. Yep. This kind of came up uh, because we have a speaker that's going to be in town uh, the day before doing a talk for financial planners. And so I'm going to have him speak uh, with our group, this group, if you'd like to come, the next day. And what we're going to talk about is uh, there are people who have said to me, Nikki, I don't want to move to a retirement community. Uh, that's great, but it's not for me. Uh, but I do want to get out of this house, and I'm probably going to buy something. And I don't know if I should get a mortgage or pay cash or et cetera. So we're going to do a talk on that. And then the uh, last one uh, on that list is about retirement community moves. And we're going to have some folks here on a panel we're going to talk about what it's like living in a retirement community and to make that decision and how they did it. And we've done that before. It's always a lot of fun because it's people that are living that and been through that. Okay. Um, last but not least, we have focus groups. You guys got a letter in the mail, if you are on our mailing list anyway, you got a letter in the mail with our mid-year announcements. And one of the things was we're doing three focus groups. Uh, let's see, August 8th uh, and 9th. And the focus groups are only, we have, how many people can be in each one of those, Danielle? Eight, did we say? Eight people per focus group. There are three focus groups, so it's 24 people, and then we'll take a waiting list in case we have a cancellation. But Danielle back there, uh, standing in the back with the purple shirt on, she has a list, and if you haven't already told her you'd like to do it, pick your location and your time. What I'm going to be doing, she has questions that we'll be asking, is what I'm trying to do is plan for next year for our, our seminars next year, and I want in, I want your input. I want to know what you thought about these so far this year. I want to know which ones we should be doing next year, what you think about the venue, what you think about our format, all those things, right? We want your opinion. It's important to us, and some people like to do that in person. I'll be facilitating those focus groups myself, um, so uh, come ready to speak the truth. And if you don't want to come to a focus group where it doesn't fit your schedule, we can give you the questions, and you, we're happy to let you write those out provide them to us in writing or typed or whatever you want to do, okay? All right, did you learn something today? Yes? By a show of hands, how many of you are going to leave here and take action on at least one thing that we talked about today? Raise your hand. Awesome, great. And those of you, Tommy, that didn't raise your hand, I'll be talking to you afterwards. <laughs> All right. You guys give yourselves a round of applause and make it a great day.